0: Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Josh Noble, and this is News and Focus, where we offer our insights into the global news stories that matter. There's been a worrying build-up of tensions in the Arab Gulf after the US accused Iran of making military preparations and responded by sending more troops and hardware to the region. This follows the US decision last year to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal and ramp up sanctions that have crippled the Iranian economy. Jeff Dyer discusses whether there is a real risk of military confrontation with Andrew England, our Middle East editor. We're prepared to engage in a conversation with no preconditions. We're ready to sit down with them. But the American effort to fundamentally uh, reverse the malign activity of this Islamic Republic, this revolutionary force, uh, is going to continue. So that was Mike Pompeo, the US Secretary of State, speaking in Switzerland, and Donald Trump echoed very similar sentiments on Wednesday when he said that there was a chance of military action against Iran, although that he personally would much rather talk. Andrew, how did we get to this point? How is it that we've shifted from talking about economic sanctions and economic pressure on Iran to now that we're genuinely hearing the American president talking about taking military action against Iran?
1: I think we have to take a step back to even before Donald Trump was elected. He's taking a very belligerent tone on Iran, particularly the nuclear deal Tehran signed with six world powers in 2015, and he promised to withdraw from it. He did that in May 2018, and since then he's imposed crippling sanctions on Iran and trying to squeeze the Islamic Republic financially to change its behaviour. But at the same time, he's doing more than just taking financial measures. In April, he designated the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps as a terrorist organization, which is the first time a government entity has been designated a terrorist group. That upped the ante in the standoff between Iran and Trump and Since then, shortly after that, his national security adviser, John Bolton, announced that the US was sending an aircraft carrier strike group to the Middle East, saying that there were signs of escalatory action by Iran. But the US officials gave no real details. But clearly there was a buildup of tensions from April into May. Then we saw four tankers were damaged by what was called a sabotage attack off the coast of the United Arab Emirates, which is an ally of the US and very hawkish on Iran, as is Saudi Arabia, its neighbour, and two of those tankers were Saudi. Shortly after that, there were drone attacks on pumping stations that are crucial to pumping Saudi Arabia's oil through the country, which were claimed by Houthi rebels based in Yemen, who are allied to Iran and are fighting a war with Saudi Arabia. So we had sort of a military build-up. Then we had these two incidents, and suddenly everybody was scared that the two countries were edging towards a war. More than anything else, that a miscalculation or an accident would lead to some sort of conflict. I think We've now seen a scaling back of those tensions. Both Iran and President Trump have said they don't want a war. But what it showed is how the heightened tensions, the military manoeuvres could easily lead to a miscalculation or an accident, as people are saying, that could lead to a conflict. So we've been through a very tense and worrying period.
0: As you mentioned, the US has said that it has evidence that Iran is plotting against American interests in the region. And we did have this incident about the four tankers that were apparently sabotaged. What is the nature of this evidence? Is there any public evidence that Iran has this underlying plan to attack US interests and was involved in the uh, incident with the tankers?
1: No, not yet. There's no evidence. John Bolton, Trump's national security advisor, says he suspects that Iranian mines were used in the attack on the tankers. We do know the Hufi rebels claimed responsibility for the attacks on the pumping stations in Saudi Arabia. And the Hufi rebels, as I said, are aligned to Iran and the US and Saudi Arabia and the UAE claim that Iran arms the Houthi rebels. But on the tankers specifically, no, we don't have any evidence. And we haven't really been given any detail at all about what US officials mean by escalatory behaviour. What we do know is Iran has a lot of proxies and allies in the region. So in Iraq, for example, there are Shia militias, powerful Shia militias, politically and militarily, that have supported, armed and backed by Iran, going back to the 1980s. In Lebanon, Hezbollah, the militant group that has a political and a military wing, is backed by Iran. As I said, in Yemen, the UAE, the US and Saudi Arabia all claim that the rebels are armed by Iran. So I think what the concern has been is that Iran could use its proxies or its allied foreign militia in any of these countries, to use any sort of asymmetrical war to push back against the US pressure. Now, we don't have any evidence of that happening yet, but this has always been the fear and that if things did escalate to the point of conflict, this is how Iran could respond. So I think the suspicion would be that the tanker attacks could be a sign of that or a sign that Iranian allies in the region are being put on more of a footing in case of any confrontation. So this is the concern. It's whether proxies of Iran, directly or indirectly, would end up in some sort of clash, deliberately or accidentally, with US assets or those of its allies. Now, it's very hard to have this conversation
0: without also thinking in the background about the Iraq war 16 years ago. And of course, John Bolton was at the time a very senior figure in the Bush administration in the run-up to the Iraq war, an intervention that was then accused of having been based on some manipulated intelligence. Just how many echoes, how similar is this to the process of the run-up to the Iraq war? And is there any real sense that maybe the US is over-egging the intelligence that it has at its disposal?
1: I think the latter point is the key thing. I think this is what's made people slightly nervous that some sort of pretext could be used to create an escalation to the point of conflict with Iran. But I think we are in a very different situation. I think Donald Trump, and you probably know better than I, Jeff, from your time in Washington, you know he's been very clear from the beginning of his term in office that he doesn't support military interventions. In fact, he's shown signs that he's wanted to withdraw American troops from the Middle East. He's talked about drawing troops from Syria previously to the latest escalation. And there's been questions about whether he would leave troops in Iraq. And so... Donald Trump, and he's been very explicit on this in recent weeks, says he doesn't want war and is not perceived to be a leader who would suddenly launch a massive military campaign as happened with the lead up to the war in Iraq. And remember, the war in Iraq was built up, it was flagged, there was clearly a collection of evidence which turned out to be questionable, there were UN sessions, etc, etc. And then there was a massive troop deployment. So it worked out over stages. I'm not sure what you feel about this, Jeff, but this feels to me different. I think where the concern is, is whether somebody was seen to be manufacturing evidence or creating a pretext to go to war and whether this was being driven by hawks within the Trump administration.
0: I think you're right. I mean, the key thing is that Trump is now just entering into the start of a long or just re-election campaign. And on the one hand, he very much likes to look tough. He likes to sort of posture as a sort of strong leader on the world stage. And as you mentioned before, he was absolutely adamantly against Barack Obama's nuclear deal with Iran. But at the same time, he did get elected in 2016 on a promise not to start new wars in the Middle East. And it just seems very hard to imagine that he would go into an election campaign by starting another potentially open-ended war, which many people in the military think would require an explicit U.S. military intervention like troops on the ground in Iran to actually follow through. So that seems quite far-fetched. But maybe what's happening is he believes that if he raises the threat, he can somehow get Iran to the negotiating table with more leverage to try and deal with the things that weren't in the nuclear deal, the ballistic missiles issue, some of its support of other regimes around the region. Maybe that's what he thinks he can do by playing a sort of good cop, bad cop with John Bolton.
1: Yeah, possibly. I think another point is that the sort of devastation the Iraq conflict caused and the chaos that came in its wake is still very fresh in many people's minds. I mean, a massive amount of troops were deployed and you know there are serious questions about what was achieved. And does anybody want another conflict after you know we've had essentially fifteen years of conflict in the region? Does anybody believe that a fresh conflict would bring any kind of stability to the region? I think The sense is there has been a de-escalation over the last couple of weeks. I mean, Trump, again, on his visit to the UK, said, you know, he doesn't want a war. But he said military action could happen. But essentially, he's reiterating that he doesn't want a war. Prime Minister Abe, the leader of Japan, will be going to Tehran. And there's a possibility that he will try and act as a mediator. He has relative good relations with Iran. And he recently saw Donald Trump. So I think People are hoping that there is a de-escalation. The problem is we're in a situation where Iran is getting nothing out of the nuclear deal. It stayed in the nuclear deal. It's complied with it for a year, despite Donald Trump's decision to unilaterally withdraw from it. And the pressure is building in Iran. It's building economically as its oil exports have been slashed massively by the tightness of the sanctions. There's no Western trade with the country because of the U.S. sanctions. No company with any exposure to U.S. whatsoever is willing to do any business with Iran. So the regime itself is coming under a lot of pressure. Some people think that that could push them to the negotiating table, but it's very difficult to imagine. I mean, for the hardliners in Iran, Trump's actions and his decision to withdraw from an international agreement that Iran did sign up to shows that the West can't be trusted. They feel vindicated in the sense that, look, we told you that the US could never be trusted, here's the proof. And given the bellicose nature of Trump's attacks on the leaders of Iran, it's very hard to see how they could be seen to be submissive to the so-called maximum pressure being put on the regime and go to the negotiating table without having some sort of concessions.
0: That was a clip of Iraq's foreign minister, Mohammed Al-Hakim, saying that Iraq opposes unilateral measures taken by the US and offering to act as an intermediary. Andrew, does Iran have any other allies in the region that are prepared to help it out in this standoff with the US?
1: If you just go to Iraq for a minute, I mean, Iraq's in a very sensitive situation. It shares a long ball with Iran, has trade, political, religious, cultural ties with Iran. As I said, there are very powerful Shia militias, Politically and militarily in Iraq, that are backed and trained by Iran. And at the same time, you know, it has ties with the US and it has had since Saddam Hussein was toppled in 2003. So they've always had to try and balance out their interests with Iran, who's a neighbor and a natural nation that they're going to trade with, they're going to have ties with, with the US, which has been heavily involved in the fight against ISIS and which still is a very influential power in the country. So I think their biggest concern is that they could become a platform for any kind of Conflict and could get squeezed in the tensions between two of its key allies. Elsewhere, obviously Iran has allies in Syria, where it's helped keep Bashar al-Assad in power. Qatar doesn't take the same hawkish tone on Iran as, say, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Oman, less so as well. But the regional power struggle is between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE see Iran as an existential threat. They accuse it, like the US, of interfering in Arab affairs, promoting extremism and being a destabilising force throughout the region. I still question whether the UAE and Saudi Arabia would actually want a war with Iran. I think they certainly support Donald Trump's decision to pull out of the nuclear agreement, which they were very upset with and they believed had emboldened Iran. And they very much support the economic pressure being put on Iran. But I've spoken to Arab officials in the region and they've said that actually they believe there also has to be a parallel political process to go alongside the economic pressure because you've got to give the country the way out. And then you would use that to discuss the nuclear agreement. You'd use it to discuss Iran's ballistic missile programme, which concerns a lot of its Arab neighbours and its regional role and its support for militias. Now, the bigger question is, even if you've got any form of negotiations, where would Iran be willing to compromise? Most people think that when it comes to the regional influence, the ballistic missile program, that's pretty much off the table for Iran because it sees it very much as part of its national security. It sees itself surrounded by hostile Arab states. It has very clear memories of the 1980s war with Iraq when the US, the UK, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and other Arab states supported Saddam Hussein and isolated Iran. And that put the whole Islamic regime at risk and it survived, but it still remembers the sacrifices, the hostility of its neighbours and Western powers to it. So these are still very much part of the psyche in Iran and what drives many of its regional interests in terms of how it sees its national security, which means they're very hard issues for Iran to negotiate.
0: At the same press conference in Baghdad last month, Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Zarif, said his country would not bow to military or economic aggression. Andrew, you were in Iran earlier this year. Just tell us how the whole Trump administration strategy is playing within the Iranian regime and this sort of endless struggle that we read about Mm -hmm. between the more moderate
1: elements and the more hardline elements of the regime. I think it's definitely weakened and put intense pressure on Hassan Rouhani, who was re-elected in May 2017, using the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, as his main campaign pledge. Iranians overwhelmingly voted for him because they supported the nuclear deal in the hope that it would open up the country, bring in much-needed investment and see some sort of re-engagement with the West after years of isolation. Iranians aspire to be part of the outside world. They aspire to have better lives. They aspire to have better prospects. It's a very educated, urbanised population. And they might not have supported Rouhani, but they certainly Supported the nuclear deal in the hope that it could be used to open up and bring in some sort of reform. Now, almost as soon as Rouhani was re-elected on this campaign pledge, Trump is piling the pressure on Iran, has a devastating impact on the economy. It's gone into a deep recession, inflation is soaring, so everybody in Iran is getting squeezed. Politically, the hardliners have used it to criticise Rouhani, saying that it's his fault for agreeing to poor terms that didn't bring any dividend for Iran, I mean, in theory, the nuclear deal was supposed to bring investment to Iran in return for it limiting its nuclear activity. But Iran's never really seen a huge amount of investment. And as soon as Trump started talking about reimposing sanctions on Iran, all the major companies, Total, Peugeot, pulled out. So on the one hand, politically, hardliners are using it to say we were right looking to strengthen their position within the internal politics of the regime. On the other hand ordinary Iran is getting financially squeezed on a massive scale and so all their hopes have been dashed. Their hopes in 2017 when they re-elected Rouhani that hey maybe the nuclear deal could actually really bring about some serious change have been devastated and it's a very bleak mood now.
0: Well with that I say Andrew England, thank you very much. Thank you Jeff. That was Jeff Dyer, our former Washington correspondent, talking to Andrew England, the Middle East editor for the FT. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on China's threat to use rare earths as a weapon in the trade war, the fall of Britain's answer to Warren Buffett, or the return of Peronism in Argentina, you can find them all on the usual podcast platforms.